Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. You're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 13 through 16 again this week for another look at hope and holiness, this time part 2. So please stand with me as I read God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that by your spirit you teach us. I pray, Lord, that you would renew our minds today, that you would change our hearts, that you would glorify your name. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I'm excited today because I get to share with you what God has been teaching me regarding sanctification and holiness. Holiness is an interesting idea. It's an interesting concept. And I know we think of all sorts of things when we hear the word holiness. Kevin DeYoung calls holiness the new camping. It's what everyone likes the idea of, but no one actually likes to do. I call holiness the new flossing. What everybody knows they need to do, but don't really want to do, and only, have, only do when they need to do, or have to do. I think sometimes in the church, when we think about holiness, we think it's about being churchy. Coming to church on Sunday and looking a certain way. When I was growing up, I don't think I would have been described as a particularly sober-minded child or a serious child in general. I like to have fun. I was pretty squirrely. As I've mentioned to you before, I was usually sweaty and in some kind of behavioral trouble. But I had a tender-hearted side and I, I even had a serious side to myself. I knew when I really needed to behave. I knew how to behave in the library. I knew how to behave going out to dinner. I knew how to behave in church. I knew how to go to a funeral and sit there. I knew how to go to a wedding and behave. Because my parents took me and my sisters into all those settings, and they taught us how to behave. My fear, though, with holiness is that we would just learn how to behave. That we would just learn churchy rules. That we would just learn how to be looking a certain way so people will think a certain thing about us and leave us alone. I'm concerned about holiness being misunderstood and God is far, far, far more concerned than any of us might be. Sober-mindedness is an interesting thing. Sober-mindedness is called for in lots of different situations in life. And, and it just hits you, and no one has to tell you, hey, be serious. This is a serious topic. You're driving in your car, and you see that someone has been in a terrible auto accident. It's sobering. You're in a court of law, and the, the judge is about to pronounce the verdict. People's lives are hanging in the balance. It's It's serious. Someone is dying. People aren't joking. The other end of the spectrum, you've got a baby being born. Joyful experience, but very sobering, very serious. So lots of times in life, you you know that whatever's going on is really serious, it's really weighty, it's very important, it's, it's sobering. So that's what the topic of God's holiness does to us. It's serious, it calls for sober-minded readiness, which is why Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, prepare your minds for action. 
gird up the loins of your mind, gather everything together, be focused, be sober, don't be intoxicated by the world, and fix your hope completely on the grace that you're going to get when Christ returns. Well, sometimes though, isn't it true that we kind of slide into the mode that's just expected of us? Autopilot Christianity, autopilot holiness. We learn how to put on a good face. We learn how to put on the outward appearance, even though what might be happening on the inside is the furthest thing from what the outside is showing. And we get trained to do this. We, we get attuned to doing this because then we can hide. We don't have to be who we really are. But today I'm here to let you know that God wants you to understand holiness. God wants you to get the idea of holiness about what it really, really is and how it goes far beyond expected behaviors and learning how to behave in, in churchy situations and around churchy people like me. And how holiness is to be characteristic of every believer in Christ. If you're a Christian, this might surprise you to hear, but if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, you believe in His finished work on the cross, He died for your sins, He was buried, He rose from the grave, and He's coming again, and you have said, Jesus, I, I believe that, I want to follow you, I, I, I've received forgiveness of sins and eternal life, and if that's you, this might surprise you, but you are holy. It's not that you might attain holiness at some point. God calls you holy. So when Paul is speaking and he, and he writes to a church and he says to the saints who are in Ephesus, he means those who are, have been made holy by God. If you are a Christian, you are holy and God is growing you up into your true identity. Oftentimes when I was a kid, my parents would hand me a pair of pants and say, here, here's a pair of pants. And I'd, I'd be like, these are way too big. And they would say, you'll grow into them. You'll grow into them. And I would. I would grow into them. I wouldn't have to roll up the, the cuffs of the jeans anymore. But then I would grow out of them. If you are a Christian, you are holy, and God is growing you up into your identity, and you will not outgrow it. It will fit perfectly. Verse 15. Go to verse 15 with me. It says, But as he who called you is holy. That's how the ESV version says. The NASB says, As the Holy One who called you. Either way, it's saying that God is holy. We saw this last week, that He is holy. That means He is separated from sin completely. Perfect freedom from all evil. The absolute absence of any evil in him. But we tend to lean towards an idea of holiness that is something to pursue so that people will think good things about us. Or think better things about us than we think they're thinking about us. We go for this, this Christian subculture holiness that's reputation oriented, that's self-motivated. And, and we should be striving for something far greater. We should be striving to please God. We should be striving that He would be pleased and praised as a result of our lives. Because biblical holiness is nothing less than having the character of God. Conformity to the character of God. And for a believer in Christ, be more, even more specific. And I'll say, it's, it's being like Jesus. That's holiness. Most of us will say, okay, great, but I still have questions about holiness. What exactly is it? And how do you get it? And how do I know if I have it? And how can I tell? I think if you did a spiritual brain scan on most Christians, and, and that would be scary because our true thoughts and feelings would then emerge, we would go to that idea of, well, holiness is a pretty crazy concept. It's unattainable impossible if we were honest 
and our thoughts were exposed, it would show that we often think, you know those holy people? They're really annoying. Holy people are really annoying. They pretend to be something that they cannot be, and they're not that way, because I see them the other six days of the week, and they're doing things they cannot do. They're lying about their true identity and who they really are. And so we just think, you know, that the idea of holiness is just really annoying. And holy people are really annoying. They're a sliver in our understanding of God. They're a pebble in the shoe of our faith. Really bugs us. They're pretenders. Holiness is just a figment of their imagination. If we were honest, we would we'd have to admit that we think things like that about people that seem to be holy too often problem is, and it's a really good problem for us to have, is that deep down in our hearts, what we really, really know is that we hunger for God as believers, and we hunger for His holiness, and we hunger, as, as Hebrews 12 says, that we would share His holiness, that we would experience it. The big question I gave last week was, how can you be holy as God is holy? And so, I was outlining five things in this passage that characterize and drive hope-inspired holiness. And I told you last week, it was not in any particular order except what I see in the text, the flow of the passage. It's not meant to be one after another, like, check, I got that, let's move on to the next thing and not think about it anymore. I mentioned last week that the therefore in verse 13 points us back to the first 12 verses of this chapter. And the indicatives, the verbs in here that are stating what is, what God has done in salvation. Very God-centered view that Peter is giving. How we were chosen before the foundation of the world. How we were foreknown by God. How we, He caused us to be born again. But then you get to verse 13 and the verb, they changed into imperative. Three primary imperatives in, in these verses. The first is, fix your hope. It's in the imperative. It is, a, it is a command in response to what God has done. So fix your hope. And then the other imperative, be holy. Later on, not in these verses, but in a few verses later, it's the idea of loving believers deeply. So really, three primary imperatives here. Fix your hope. Be holy. Love deeply. They are commands in response to what God has done. The idea is that every true believer in Jesus is called to respond to the free gift of salvation in faith and also then live lives marked by holiness. Honoring God in their thoughts and their words and their actions. We know we don't measure up, but that is the ideal. Last week, we looked at the first three characteristics. Number one, it was readiness. Verse 13, prepare your minds for action, be sober in spirit, get ready to run, get ready to work. Runner like a runner in the starting blocks. Intent on the goal, be sober-minded, not intoxicated by the world, not drunk with the world's traps or pitfalls or mirages. Fix your hope on grace. Number two, we saw repentance this need for ongoing repentance. That you need to take sin seriously if you're a Christian. Too many, sin, too many Christians coddle sin. Too many Christians even become famous for sin. And so, verse 14 says, As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't go back into your old life and wallow in those sins or even engage in them. And don't, don't in your present life engage in ongoing sin so don't be like you used to be you have a new identity like romans 12 says be transformed by the renewing of your mind don't be conformed to the world so readiness and repentance and the third thing i pointed out last week is responsibility that we need to take responsibility i use the example of the farmer and god and that god can't do won't do the farmer's work and the farmer can't do god's work you got to take our responsibility seriously and, and do what God says we should do. In the power of the Holy Spirit, by His Word. Okay, now we get to the other two. And so we'll start here with the fourth characteristic of hope-inspired holiness. 
and then we'll move on to the fifth. But the fourth characteristic is that of reverence. Reverence for God. The idea is that God is perfect, that God is holy. A synonym for reverence would be righteous fear. Righteous fear of God. All of us have probably had some unwarranted fears, maybe some irrational fears. When I was five years old and in kindergarten, I had an irrational fear of mushrooms. So I would get chased around the schoolyard by a kid with mushrooms in his hand, and I would run to the teacher and be comforted because I was so afraid of the mushrooms. Irrational fear. I love mushrooms today, but back then I was very, very afraid of mushrooms. I have a rational fear of spiders. Back in 1984, as a 22-year-old college kid in his first ministry assignment, I was bit by a brown recluse spider. Spent three days on IVs in, in the hospital. The doctor said, if you weren't so young, you would have been dead. Actually, to be honest, he said, if you weren't so strong and young, you would be dead. i got to get the record straight here, but... I got a warranted fear of snakes. I've killed one snake, but usually I, I get the heebie-jeebies around them. They give me like chills. I got to walk away, run away from the snakes. That's a rational warranted fear. If you're a Christian, you should fear God. You should reverence God. You should be in awe-struck wonder at what God has done for you in Christ. Righteous fear is healthy. People will say, oh, it's not good to be afraid. You should be very afraid of God. You should love Him, but you should also know He is God. Helps you gain perspective. Awe, reverence, respect, awestruck wonder at the Savior who saved and sanctifies you if you're a Christian. Verse 15 says, as the Holy One, be holy like God in all your behavior." I'm one of those people that when I read something in the Bible, and I see the word, and I go, that's what it means, that's what it says, great, I'm there. All your behavior. Not just in church on Sunday, not just in your Bible study on Tuesday, but in all your behavior, God says, be holy. Be holy. So we know we even, we even match up to that even less than we already think we do. A holiness is necessary. Holiness... I can give you a picture is this it is simultaneously beautiful and terrifying on one hand you have this abject rapturous captivating beauty of God in Christ and on the other hand sheer terror sheer terror we don't get taught this do we that we should be terrified of God it's like standing on the edge of Niagara Falls. I've been there. You're, you're literally one step away from death. And you know it. We all struggle with sin. Every one of us. We all struggle with sin. We're, we're, we're trying to battle it and sometimes we give in and sometimes we get into patterns of life that is, is it's so deceptive but we actually we think we're serving God and we're actually serving sin. The more we see God's holiness, the more we see His righteous standards, as the Word of God shows us, the more we see how far short we fall. Think of Moses. Moses in Exodus chapter 3. He's a shepherd and he's taking care of his father-in-law Jethro's flocks. And he takes these flocks out into the wilderness and he comes to the edge of the wilderness to Oreb, which is known as the mountain of God. How would you like to, to show up at the mountain of God? Moses shows up at the mountain of God and what happens? He sees a bush that's burning. I always picture a tumbleweed. Well, let's picture a big green bush. And it's burning and it's not burned up. It's not being consumed. That's kind of crazy. I put wood in the little fire pit in my backyard and after a while it all gets consumed and there's just ashes left. 
Here Moses is looking at the bush and the bush isn't consumed and it's not like the birthday candle that you can't blow out and keeps lighting again and again. It's not the trick birthday candle. It's a real bush that won't stop burning and it's not consumed. And it says that that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looks and he sees it's burning and it's not consumed. So he says, I'm going to go check this out. I'm going to go see what the deal is with this bush. And it says that when God saw that Moses turned aside to look, because Moses is curious, you and I would have been curious. We'd be like, wow, what's going on with that? And when God saw this, God calls to Moses out of the bush. So you don't just have a burning bush that won't, that won't be consumed, but you've got God speaking out of the bush. It reminds me of going to Jack in the Box when I was a kid. Big old jumbo Jack, you know, picture of Jack, and he's like talking to you. And I'm like, who's inside there? God is talking from the bush. And he says, Moses, Moses, calls him by name. He says, I'm here, God. This is me. What does God say? Do not come near. Do not come near. You take your shoes off. Take the sandals off your feet because the place on which you are standing is holy. It's holy ground. Then God reveals himself. He says, I am the God of your father. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And how does Moses respond? Oh God, you're just joking around. Oh God, you're my homeboy. Oh God, you're my buddy pal. Oh God, oh no. It says that God says this to Moses. And then Moses hides his face from God. Moses hides himself. For he was afraid to look at God. Go on in Exodus and... God calls Moses up on on the mountain and he gives them the Ten Commandments and he's coming down the mountain and the people had played the harlot and they had they had they had re worshipping this false god, this golden calf, and Aaron says, Well, I, I, I threw the, the gold in the fire and poof out comes this golden calf. Liar. He made it for the people to worship and said, This is your God. And Moses goes to God on behalf of the people. He he intercedes for them. He prays for them. And and at one point, he is so overtaken, he says, show me your glory. What does God say? Moses, remember the bush? You can't see my face in this. You'll disintegrate. You're not me. You can't see me in this. I think of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6. Alex referred to it this morning. Isaiah 6. He sees the Lord high and exalted. and He's on His throne and, and angels are, are saying what we were singing today. By the way, I don't think we know what we're singing. We've got a little sliver of knowledge about what we're singing. If we really got what we were singing we'd be flat on our faces on the floor. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. C.S. Lewis said, how little people know who think holiness is dull. When one meets the real thing, it's irresistible. Why do you think that Moses wanted to see the burning bush? Why do you think Moses said, show me your glory? God was pulling him like a magnet. Irresistible. Jonathan Edwards said, holiness is the most beautiful and lovely thing. We drink in strange notions of holiness from our childhood as if it were a melancholy, morose, sour, and unpleasant thing. But there is nothing in it but what is sweet and ravishingly lovely. See, when you understand who God is, you, you are drawn to Him. 
But then you begin to see the difference, and it's so clear, and you understand who you are, and you are like Isaiah. We don't use the word woe about ourselves. When's the last time you use the word woe? You don't use it. So I'm toast, right? I'm toast. You, you, like Isaiah, you abhor yourself and you're, you're ruined in your own sight. It's what R.C. Sproul calls the trauma of holiness. The trauma. We're not used to trauma. We want to get out of trauma. We, we've not been taught the trauma of holiness. He says, woe is me for I am ruined. Because I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. The Almighty, the King. It would be really easy to look at Isaiah 6 and go, wow, isn't that cool that God kind of just landed that right in there perfectly and I, in chapter 6? I'm sure the first five chapters are really awesome. You should read them. I did. There's some crazy stuff going on. And, and guess what? There, should, there was no surprise when, when we get to Isaiah 6, no surprise, because it's been building up like this all the way through the first five chapters of Isaiah. Chapter 1, God says, They have despised the Holy One of Israel. The mouth of the Lord has spoken, and they've despised me. Chapter 2, He says, The Lord alone is going to be exalted against all the pride of man. Man's going to be humble. God's going to be exalted. Man defies God's glorious presence. That's what God said. He says they, they become famous for their sins. We know people, even the Christian community, that are famous for their sins. God forbid that we would be famous for our sins. He says, Woe to my people, their guides have misled them. They're, they're puffed up, they're haughty, they're self-absorbed, they're self-gratifying, they're self-glorifying. Then you get to chapter 4. You're, you're inching towards Isaiah 6. And, and God says, the branch of the Lord is glorious. That's Jesus. He says, my people will be holy. All those who are recorded for life in Jerusalem are going to be holy. He says, I'm going to wash the filth away. Just hope of forgiveness. And you get into chapter 5, you're at the doorstep of chapter 6 and, and you read that man is going to be humbled and God is exalted and holy but his hand is stretched out still longs to be merciful to his people and then you get to chapter 6 no surprise, the buildup has been obvious, high and lifted up, holy, holy, holy but God's people, their hearts had become dull, cauterized callous grace and mercy were not what they were seeking and God says your sins, he says to Isaiah your sins are atoned for at Isaiah's confession your sins are atoned for God is giving this beautiful picture of ransom hearts that can become attuned to God you go through the book of Isaiah you get to chapter 40 the grass withers, the flower falls but the word of our God stands forever what I said will happen you get to Isaiah 55 and God says, your ways are not my ways. You think, you spend your whole life thinking that you're, that you're, there's something. Your ways are not like mine. My ways are so far higher than yours. And my word will succeed in the purpose for which I sent it. That should cause us to bow in humble worship. In our hearts, in, in our minds, in our actions. Fact. In the presence of a holy God. All pettiness falls to the ground. You, you disintegrate into your own mind. You disintegrate. We've spent our whole lives trying to be whole, trying to keep everything together. And, and in the presence of a holy God, we would cry out like Isaiah, I'm losing it. I am falling apart. I am undone. What we want is everything meshed and intact. Instead, we find disintegration. Reverence. It would be easy for us to say, well, you know, Isaiah, come on, let's be honest. Isaiah, bad guy. Isaiah was a bad guy. I read all about him. He's not, he wasn't a good guy. Of course, you know, he's going to be feeling like this. 
Truth about Isaiah. Isaiah was the most righteous man in Israel. No one more righteous than Isaiah. And he gets one glimpse of the holiness of God and he comes apart. We spend a whole life shielding ourselves from the glory of God. We don't even know what we're doing. Our natural inclination is to hide ourselves from God because of our sin, just like Adam and Eve. We know instinctively as a believer that the Holy Spirit exposes and reveals anything in anyone who is not holy. And in the presence of God, we do not measure up to His standard. And, and like Isaiah, we are disgusted with ourselves. It's no accident that when, when Jesus says, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. We go, well, deny means I'm not going to get that coffee I wanted later. Ooh, I denied myself. Ooh. Deny means to repudiate yourself. It means to be so fed up with yourself that you want nothing to do with yourself because you know that you need God to change your heart. We're disgusted with ourselves in the presence of a holy God, but we're quick to excuse ourselves because we're measuring ourselves by everyone else we see around us. God's standard is God. Calvin said, as long as our gaze is fixed on the ground, we flatter ourselves. What happens is, as you grow in the knowledge of God's holiness, you, then you find you're, you're getting into the Word. You're not hiding from the Word of God because you know what you're going to find. You're like, I need the Word of God to change me because I'm messed up. And you make some progress in holiness. Because this is weird, but it seems that the gap between your knowledge and your practice is getting bigger and bigger, not smaller and smaller. To you, the difference, God gets bigger, you get smaller, and you grow in holiness. It's counterintuitive. We think, hey, I, I'm doing pretty well. People should be noticing. But this is how the Holy Spirit draws us into more and more holiness. You make progress the more your sin seems bigger to you, not smaller. The more you grow in Christ, the more putrid and repugnant your sin seems to you. So you hate sin and you delight in God's law. You agree that His commandments are not burdensome, but holy and righteous and good. And you see your inner corruption and how frequently you fall into sin, and you cry out like Paul, wretched man that I am, who's going to set me free? And what, you, what, you, what you're surprised by is it's all a part of God's process. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. When reverence marks your life. I took you to Hebrews 12, 14 last week. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Which means if you're a Christian, you will not see Jesus without holiness. And instead of you going, well, I better go find some quick. I better work really, 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 really hard. You have to see that, oh, wait. I've got holiness positionally in Christ and I need to serve God with reverence and awe. That's what the end of chapter 12 says. You know, acknowledging God's holiness is one of the ways we're to praise Him. And I think we could follow the angels in this because they treat Him as holy all the time. You look in John's revelation of heaven and and Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, you see these four living creatures. They're not people, they're angels. And they're at God's throne. They're around God's throne. And they never cease to say this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's what they say all the time. That's what our hearts need to be saying. We need to be reminding ourselves. So reverence, reverence. A fifth characteristic. This will be our last one. Reliance. Reliance on God. It, kids, if, if you want to write this down, write down the word frog. Seriously, you got permission. Write down frog. In the middle of a sermon, write down frog. And go F, fully, R, rely, O, on, G, God. Fully rely on God. 
frog. Reliance. God, the idea is God is working in believers. God is working on believers. Let's go to Romans 8 for that one. Love Romans 8. We don't like to talk about Romans 7, right? But we love talking about Romans 8. For those whom God foreknew, just like Peter talked about, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Did you catch that? Whom God foreknew, he predestined. He, he decided ahead of time that he would conform them to the image of his son. And that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. All in the past tense, as good as done. And you're here, slogging it out in 2014, going, I'm messed up. I've got a pastor that I, I read his uh, devotional every morning, and it's a short little devotional, but it's a guy named David Whitehead in New York. Here's what he said about these verses. We didn't choose God, he chose us. This is the liberating truth because this also means that God has a plan for us to be changed into his likeness. So Christian growth is not an exercise of willpower, but of obedience to the path that God has set before us. This path is filled with God's provision and mercy, and it is the path to his glory as we keep stepping forward by faith. What this tells me is we need to look a little closer at sanctification. Talked last week about sanctification a little bit, and I said that sanctification is a progressive, lifelong work of God and man that frees us from sin and makes us more like Christ. It's true. But that's not the whole picture. It's true, and it's all by grace. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling, reverence for God. Verse 13, for it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. God is working. He's always almighty. He's always powerful. He is always all-powerful. We are never autonomous. We can't self-sanctify. Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. What I want to talk to you about is positional sanctification. Last week, I mentioned the most popular uh, explanation of sanctification, which is absolutely true. Progressive sanctification. But I want to set your minds on positional sanctification that comes before progressive sanctification. It's also known as definitive sanctification. You may have not heard this before. Definitive sanctification. Positional sanctification. Theologian John Frame defines it this way. Positional or definitive sanctification is a once-for-all event simultaneously, simultaneous with calling and regeneration that transfers us from the sphere of sin to the sphere of God's holiness, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Definitive sanctification marks us out or separates us as God's chosen people. When Paul says, so as God's chosen people, holy and beloved, he is talking about those who have a definitive positional sanctification in Christ. Marks us out as God's chosen people, his treasured, his covenantal possession. So definitive sanctification redeems us. It frees us from the dominion or the slavery to sin by uniting us to Christ. Particularly his death, his resurrection, his ascension. So sanctification seen in this way is a decisive and radical break from the power and pleasures of sin. Now why we run back to the power and pleasures of sin? That's a Romans 7 question. That is true. We deal with that. But when you look at your positional sanctification, that's the foundation of your sanctification. It is rooted not in you, not in your achievement of holiness, or sanctification, but in what God has done for you in Christ and for you in union with Him. So here's what we shouldn't do. We shouldn't look at, at being in Christ first and foremost in a very microcosmic context of our own progress. The Bible first sets us in the macrocosm of God's activity in redemptive history, what God is doing and how we're a part of that. It is seeing yourself in the context that enables 
you as an individual Christian then to grow in true holiness. That you got the macro idea and there's obviously the micro progress that you're going on. Here's what happens when you focus just on your minute movements on a daily basis. It makes you dizzy and confused and discouraged. The other day I was playing ping pong with a big group of people and what's it called? The round robin ping pong or around the world ping pong where everyone gets around the table and you, you hit the, the, uh, the ball and you put the paddle down and you run to the other side. I just want to say I was the champion four times and I did not want to be the champion. I wanted to lose, but I, I guess I was too good. And what happened is, is that when you get to be the last two people in the championship round, you have to hit the ball, put the paddle down, spin around, grab it again, and keep hitting the ball, right? Woo! I, that made me dizzy just thinking about it. And because I get dizzy just on like driving in the car, or, you know, on a big loop-de-loop ride. So doing that was, was sheer trauma. And, um, but I won four times. But the whole deal was I was so focused on my minute movements that I got dizzy. Same is true in your spiritual life. You're so focused in on, on what's going on right now in my life, my microcosm of my own progress. And what happens is you forget about the macro program of God and sanctification. It's like when you take a penny and you put the penny right up to your eye, you see, I don't know, a blob. You look out here and you got Ooh, Abraham Lincoln's head. You go way out here, you can see everything. You get the perspective. You look at God's macro program of sanctification, it gives you perspective. You can't self-sanctify, by the way. And you shouldn't be so micro-focused on your own progress in this process. And you should remember that you, you, you can't do God's part in sanctification, and He's not going to do yours. And you're like, ooh, that's a mystery. Welcome to the club, okay? God is expert in mysteries that we can't figure out. Why? Because he's infinite and we're finite. Our minds can't fully comprehend an infinite God. He has revealed himself. And we are to cooperate in our sanctification. We're never autonomous. We're never stronger. It's holy God and sinful man. Holy God, by his grace and mercy, using sinful man. Go back to verse 15. And, and see what that says once more. Be holy like the Holy One who called you. Be holy also in all your behavior. I need you to see this. Now, I went to seminary back in the 80s, so it's been a long time, but I took Greek and Hebrew. I can still read Greek. Hebrew looks like chicken scratches to me, but um, I, I get the ideas, but it's kind of hazy still. You know I don't usually bring out Greek and Hebrew words and try to impress you with all sorts of things, but I need to point this out. You need to see this. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Be means become. It's a second person plural aorist passive imperative. Pretty cool, huh? All right, now you're dismissed. Go home and say, wow, that, that was really neat. No. What you need to know is that the verb is in the imperative mood, and it indicates that it's a command that you're to obey. You say, well, you told me that last week. You told me that today big deal. Now you gave me the background. Oh no, there's more. There's something else you need to see. The verb is in the passive voice. Hmm. So you've got an imperative mood, command you're supposed to obey, but, but it's in the passive voice. What's that telling us? It indicates that another person performs the action of the verb. The idea is that God is actively sanctifying believers that the Holy Spirit is actively sanctifying believers through His Word. The idea is you're being made holy through God's Word, through the work of the Holy Spirit, in all your behavior. It should be trickling down into every nook and cranny of your life. If you're not resisting God, if you're not playing with sin, if you're not trying to get as close to the fire of sin as you possibly can, if you're running towards God and with Him. Does that make sense? So the Holy Spirit sanctifies you. The Word of God sanctifies you. And we're back in the field with, the God, with God and the farmer. God's going to do his part. He won't do your part. You've got to respond. Now, Augustine, you know the name Augustine. Augustine said something that got the heretics really mad, especially Pelagius. 
He said this. Augustine said this. Command what you will. Pelagius liked that. He didn't like the second half. Command what you will. Grant what you command. So Pelagius uh, was condemned at like five different councils. And uh, the heretics hated the second part. See, command what you will, God, but let me do the rest. Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? What was started by the Spirit, can you finish it in the flesh? The idea is that it's God's work from start to finish, but we are invited in and really commanded to be a part of the process. What happens, though, with a lot of Christians? Neglect, distracted, diverted to sin, not recognizing the presence of God. And a lot of Christians are in that camp and they don't even know it, and they're living with wax in their ears. I have this issue that I get wax built up in my ears and every once in a while I need to go to the doctor and he has to irrigate my ear and it's like brings out this big old chunk of wax. And I'm like, can I have that? I'll make a candle out of that. That's a lot of wax. And it's like, wow. But then I go, wow. I go home and I'm like, I can hear so well. You know, wow. I got new ears. No, just got the wax out. Well, a lot of Christians are living with wax in their ears and they need to get unplugged so they can hear God's word way more clearly. They can understand what the Spirit's saying to the church. Who in here has been a believer for a year or less? Praise God. Okay, first of all, I want to tell you something. Look look back at the clock really quick. Oops. Okay, worship team, stay put relax okay lunch is coming soon but i'm gonna keep going and it's gonna be maybe five more minutes okay maybe all right now here we go we're almost done but i i I, you, you need to hear this new believers new believers are so excited about jesus they love their heavenly father they love their savior they want to follow the holy spirit they want to read the word of god but something weird happens They start to grow in Christ, but it doesn't sustain. The enthusiasm kind of wanes. And most of us would say, well, you know, that's what happens when you grow up. You kind of just, you kind of plateau. But there's less passion and less dependency on God, and you've got to ask the question, why? And here's the answer that none of us want to admit. None of us that have been a believer for any length of time want to admit this. New believers drop to the level of the Christians around them. So brother, be careful around us because we will mess you up if you're not careful. What happens is we go, a brand new believer looks around and sees defeated Christians, picky Christians. Ooh, everything's got to be my way, Christians. And what happens is they are diverted from love for the Savior, love for the Holy God, and they're just brought down to the level of their Christian community around them probably happened to a lot of us you got to fight for your sanctification there is no hope of sanctification apart from trusting the holy spirit and the word of god it's true from romans 8 that your will has been bent toward jesus when you are in christ it is also true from romans 7 that you are going to see yourself fail again and again and again in sin but you got to trust jesus more than your heart you got to trust jesus more than your heart Your heart will deceive you. Bottom line, end of verse 16. You shall be holy for I am holy. Read it this way. You will be holy for I am holy. You look ahead, you see challenges, you see roadblocks. You look right in front of you and you see frustrations in life. You feel like nothing's working out. You feel alone, you feel helpless. But you look at the rearview mirror and you see it all depends on God. That God did open heart surgery on you. He changed your desires. He gave, <laughs> he gave you a new life. And you give Him all the credit for any good you do. Those good works which God ordained beforehand that you should walk in them. And then you know, God's got my future too. God's got my future. Your hope of holiness is as certain as heaven in Christ. You have to believe that. So in the presence of a holy God, we are undone and we fall apart and we feel like we're disintegrating and we rightly say with Isaiah, God, you are holy and I am dust. And we hunger and thirst for his his holiness and we hunger and thirst for him and we need 
and it's a gospel need. John Owen said, holiness is nothing but the implanting, the writing, and the realizing of the gospel on our souls. That's what holiness is. God is building into you a realistic perspective. He wants you to adopt an accurate view of of him and of you and of life from here to heaven in a hostile world. You're suffering and God wants you to know that, that you should cling to the truth and live the gospel from here to heaven. So what can those of us who feel so unholy on a moment-by-moment daily basis really do to counteract our tendency to coddle sin and to condone sin and to even, God forbid, celebrate sin and our just as prevalent tendency to discouragement and doubt? What can we do? I will quickly give you three S's. Three S words. Number one, Security. Find your security in Christ. Believe the truth. Reality is your friend. What Jesus says about you matters. Your positional sanctification is settled and secure in Christ. Bottom line, you will be holy because God is holy. Number two, sincerity. Be sincere. Be honest. Be real about your fight against sin. Don't play with sin. Don't let sin reign in your life. Kill it by the Holy Spirit. Confess and forsake your old life and your present failings because your progressive sanctification depends upon it. Romans 6.11 says, Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If you are playing with sin, you are not considering yourself dead to sin. You've got to wean yourself from sin just like you wean yourself from sugar or coffee or TV or greediness or anything else you can name that's bad for you. Number three, surrender. Be surrendered to your new master. Christian, you've got a new master. Jesus. If you're not a Christian, your master is Satan and you must run from him, flee from him as fast as you can and flee to Jesus. Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He's the father of lies. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you're not a Christian, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ right now and be saved from your sins. A Christian, your master is Jesus, whose precious blood was shed. Do not misunderstand this passage of Scripture and think that you have to try really, really hard to be good and you have to impress everybody and that there's this impossible standard that gets pushed on you that no one, including you, can do. No, you trust the Holy Spirit. You trust the Word of God. Cling to the truth of His Word. As the worship team comes back up, I'll end with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. If we want to yield to our new master, that means we're a follower, not a leader, right? It means we're not in control. So here's what Jonathan Edwards said. In all your life, in all your course... Walk with God and follow Christ as a little, poor, helpless child. Taking hold of Christ's hand. Keeping your eye on the mark of the wounds on his hands and side. Whence came the blood that cleanses you from sin and hiding your nakedness under the skirt of the white shining robe of his righteousness. Lord God, we thank you that we can walk with you and we know that you are holy and great that we are your children and we want what you want and we ask that you would be honored in Jesus name Amen